He is the Savior of our ruined life, is He not? Our only hope. Oh, there we go. And we're rolling. We're good? All right. Mark says yes. Well, good morning, North Hills. It is good to be with you this morning uh, to open up God's Word together. If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Colossians. We continue in our time together through this wonderful epistle of Paul. Uh, last week we began this, uh, this passage, this particular unit, unit that starts in uh, verse 15 of chapter 1 and continues through chapter 20. And so this is kind of the second half of a two-part uh, sermon, if you will, uh, from 15 through 20. Now, I won't belabor you with all the details of last week, but just for those who were not here and for those who have slept uh, since last week and for those who were not listening last week, uh, just a little bit of uh, context for us in this particular passage. The structure uh, is helpful for us. We said it could possibly be a hymn, uh, which was kind of my personal preference because it is just such a wonderful passage. Verses 15 through 20 just speaks to the preeminence of Jesus. It uh, more than... Maybe any other passage in the New Testament just sings so clearly of the glory and the majesty of Jesus. Now we know there's a lot of passages uh, that that does uh, that that does speak loudly of Jesus for sure. But Colossians one fifteen to twenty stands uh, stands highly on that list of singing to the greatness of Christ. And so could very well have been a a hymn of the early church. But, uh, but what was important was seeing this particular structure uh, in 15 through 20. And the reason I bring it back up is because it is uh, this bridge from last week to this week as we started in 15 and are going through 20 this morning. This structure points us to the middle. And that middle was found in the middle there of, uh, in, in verse 17 structure having a specific name that we call a chiastic structure uh basically just a fancy word we say it was a sandwich right this sandwich that right in the middle is what's important in the middle of this sandwich was the center of this chiasm is the centrality of christ and so you can't miss that we'll read our passage in a minute but if you'll go right to the beginning right in the middle of verse of this passage is verse 17 uh, and he is before all things, and then right there in the center, and in him, in Christ, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. And so right there in the very center of this, this passage uh, is, this, is this truth that in Christ, all things hold together. And we discovered last week that the, the point of this passage, the point of this unit that we're breaking up in two weeks, that I don't want us to miss this this morning as we continue moving on uh, starting in 18, is that the point of this passage is that in Christ, all things are held together. All things are held together. So what are the all things? Last week, we began talking about the the all the the physical side of all things the the physical creation the physical kingdom all things that were created by god that by christ himself uh, the thrust of this section is that in, in christ all things are held together all things physical and all things spiritual as we'll see this morning and so the first half that we spent last week on 15 through 17 was focusing on christ's role in creation 
And if you were with us last week, you heard we walked through that Christ is the image of God. It says there he is the image of the invisible God. We saw that Christ is the firstborn or the foremost of creation. That he is not a created being. He is co-eternal. He is God himself, as we'll see again this morning. He has been from the beginning, but all things are created by him and through him and for him, we saw last week. And in all things... uh, uh, be, come from Christ. And so we see this last week, and it all sums up there right in the middle that all things are held together by Christ Himself. And so the first half focusing on Christ's role in creation, in the physical realm of creation. But now Paul shifts uh, to a different realm of creation, not the physical realm of creation, but the spiritual realm of creation. And so it goes from creation to the church, or some would even say from physical creation to uh, the new creation, to spiritual creations. We'll see this morning. So let's read our text this morning. We'll start back in verse 15, but our emphasis this morning being verses 18 through 20. So Colossians 1, verses, uh, starting in verse 15. He, being Jesus, that we see going back a couple verses earlier, but He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And starting in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray. Lord, We thank you for this morning. We thank you for an opportunity to gather as your church. Thank you for those who are able to gather this morning in person, for those who are joining us online. Thank you that we're able to gather around your word this morning. We are able to gather around Christ. And so, Lord, help us to exalt him this morning. And I pray, Lord, that by the Spirit, you would speak to us this morning and you'd make clear to us your word, who is Jesus. In his strong and sweet name we do pray. Amen. As we said last week, which is true of the first half, and it is again true this week, there is so much rich theological truth found in this, uh, in this text. There is so much doctrine here that we could spend a long time just mining these last few verses, verses 18, 19, and 20. We could spend a lot of time just camping out. But fortunately for us, we're going to spend a lot of time in Colossians. We, asked, we were taking bets on how long it's going to take us to go through Colossians. Don't worry, we're not really taking bets. We're not that kind of church. Um, but it's going to take us a while. And so the things that Paul is talking about in this part of Colossians, he's going to go further in, in Colossians 2 and Colossians 3. And so we're not going to spend all of our, all of our time 
on these particular topics because we are going to come back to them. But we want to dive into at least four things this morning that we see in our text. So let's just jump into these four particular things that we want to see that Paul highlights in this second part of as he's dealing with the preeminence of Christ, the majesty, the superiority of Jesus. It says in verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the four things I want to see, the first of which is this. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the head. Particularly, he is the head of the church. And last week we saw that he is the image of the invisible God. He is God himself. He is the head of creation. And we, we saw there is this parallelism in verses 15 through 20. And there's a, some parallelism for you here. He's the head of creation, but he's also the head of the church. And Paul is very clear that he is head of the body, which is the church. Now, this is not a statement of corporate structure like the head of state. Uh, this is not particularly talking about church polity that Paul does address later on in the New Testament. Although it can be said and should be said, and we'll take a quick moment to talk about this for a moment, that Jesus is our corporate head. He is the head of the church. He is the leader of the church. And we have no need for another leader outside of Christ. He is our king. He is our Lord. And he's the leader of the church. We have no need for a pope. We have no need for a king of the church. We have Christ and he is the head of the church. We have no need for a spiritual king. Yet we do see many, um, even today, in many contexts today, uh, where this uh, might not be the case. You might walk away from many churches thinking that an individual pastor is the head of a church. And this is another good, this is neither good for the church nor for the pastor because he is trying to fill a role that is not his. It is a role for Christ because he is the head of a church. No one man is the head of the church. It is Christ and Christ alone. He is not made for that role. And the church, the leadership that is needed by the church, she already has, and that is in Christ. And yet this is another of the many important reasons that we have for what the Bible gives us in the plurality of eldership. Churches are better served not by one man at the helm, but by a group of men biblically and prayerfully pointing its congregation to Christ, the head of the church. Amen. So that is what it's not talking about. So what is Paul talking about? We're not talking about Jesus says uh, in this church polity sense here in this particular passage in verse 18, it says he is the head of the body, the church. He's not addressing that here, but he's reminding the Colossians of this wonderful truth of the new creation. And the body is a common New Testament analogy for the church. Now, as we often do, maybe a little more this morning than normal, we're going to be all through Scripture. So, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This may be a good morning just to use your phone or your iPad if you're not super familiar with the Bible. If you didn't graduate Bible drill when you were in 4th or 5th grade, then maybe this morning... Turn to your app. At 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I'm going to read a chunk of Scripture here. In this picture that uh, the Lord has given us in many places throughout the New Testament of the body. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. 
For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks or slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would, the sense, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So when Paul says, Christ is the head of the church, the body, this is what he has in mind. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And, and our unre- un- unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, with which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body that the members may, may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So we see this picture that Paul is bringing into mind to the church of Colossae here, that the church is a body. It is a group of, of individuals that come together to make one body that Christ is the head of. And go with me to Ephesians, a couple of places in the book of Ephesians, just a couple of books over from Colossians. But Ephesians chapter 5, he, he reemphasizes this. In Ephesians 5 verse 23, this beautiful passage that, uh, that we have that talks about husbands and wives and how this relationship works. And this analogy that he's giving, that the whole, one of the, the primary purposes of marriage is to point to the gospel and to the relationship between the church and Christ. But we'll just look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So again, clearly we see here that Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body and he has saved her. He has saved his body. He has saved his people as we'll see at the end of our passage this morning. In one chapter over, in chapter 4, 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, it says, in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So here again, Christ is the head of the body from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So this is the new creation. Last week in the, the beginning of this passage, Paul is talking about the, the, cre- the physical creation, the, the physical world around us. And we can see that with our eyes. We understand that a little better. But now he is talking about this new creation. This new creation of those who are in Christ. Those who are the body of Jesus. Those who are His. And He is the head of this new creation. He is the head of this body. And this use of the body is is an analogy for the church. It emphasizes two things. 
One, it emphasizes our interdependence on each other. We need one another. So I don't need the church preacher. I'm just, I can stay at home. I can stay connected. And that's been a difficult thing in the past few years, right? And we love that the COVID had helped us connect with digital technology. And we love those who are able to join us this morning. The, the flu is rampant in case you haven't heard it. If it hasn't hit your house yet, you'll probably get it before Thanksgiving. So if you haven't already had it, set, sorry to tell you, you'll probably get it in the next couple of days. So those who are sick, it's great that we can connect. But that is not God's intention to connect remotely, right? God's intention is for us, for us to gather as the people of God. And for those who can say, I can gather the same remotely as I can in person don't understand the interconnectedness that we have as God's people. We depend on one another just as the body depends on every part of itself to function. And so this analogy that we have, it, em- it emphasizes the interdependence that we have on one another. But more importantly, it emphasizes the dependence that we have on Christ, the head. Now, I don't want to get graphic here, but I don't want to miss this. You can live without certain parts of your body, right? You're not going to live long without your head. Christ is the, is the head of the body. He is the one that sustains. As it says there in verse 17, He holds it all together. He is the source of all creation, of the physical creation, the physical realm, of the spiritual realm. Without Christ, there is nothing. The church is not just a group of people who love each other. It's not just a group of people who come together who want to, you know, have, have a meal together and have shared interest and want to just hang out with each other. We, are, we come together because of a, of a shared head of the church who is Christ. He unites us. He unites our hearts and our minds. He unites our very lives. He is Christ. He is the head of the church. Without Christ, there is no church. Without Christ, there is no creation. Can the church have a closer relationship? Could there be a closer analogy than the body? The church is not just a kingdom of citizens, although we are a kingdom of of Christian citizens under, under a king, but we're not just a kingdom of citizens with a king. The church is described as the very body of Christ. And he is our head. So firstly, Jesus is the head. He's the head of creation. He's the head of the church. Secondly, Jesus is the beginning. He is the beginning. He is the arche, is the Greek word here. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And in everything he might be preeminent. As we finish up verse 18 there. And this word beginning, this word archaic that we have, it's a, it's a word similar to what we looked at last week that has two different meanings. It's used 130 times in the New Testament and it's used a little bit differently here or there. And it has two different meanings. One is the source, meaning it's the first in time. And the other is it is supreme. It is the greatest in something. So when it says that he is the archaic, that it is, and he, Paul means here, he is both. He is the beginning first, and he is the archaic. He is the greatest. He is the supreme. He is preeminent. He is the firstborn from the dead, and everything he might be preeminent, he might be superior. The definition of archaic here is that which is first either in time or in rank and authority. And Christ is both. 
He is first in rank, and He is first in time. Christ is not just the beginning of creation that we see in verse 15, that we see in Genesis chapter 1. He's not just the beginning of our physical creation, but He is the beginning of this new creation. Those who have come from death to life, Christ is the beginning of it. He is the giver of that life. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Love 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll start in verse 16. We may just read down to verse 21 because it's one of my favorite passages. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. A new creation. That's what we're looking at in Colossians. Is this new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ, we're going to see this at the end of our text in Colossians, reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And just for bonus this morning, verse 21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Nothing to do with our own ability, but because of Christ. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the the one who's the bringer of this life. He is the beginning of this new creation. Luke tells us in Acts chapter 26, verse 23, you don't have to tell, you don't have to turn there. But he tells us that it was Christ who was the first one to rise from the dead. He was the preeminent one to rise from the dead, to have this glorified state. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So just one over, one more book. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. And you could read starting in verse 1. We won't for the sake of time, but this 1 Corinthians 15 is just a, a beautiful passage. It's one that we turn to every Resurrection Sunday or, or Easter Sunday, if you will, every year. It's a beautiful reminder of the gospel and it talks about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the purpose of the, resurre- the resurrection, a very needed reminder of the resurrection. It talks there, and as you go from uh, verse 12 through 19, it talks about the, that we are a people to be pitied if the resurrection indeed did not happen. But there in verse 20, but in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. So one man, Adam, all have died, it says. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So death through one person, but alive, life through one person. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of these enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put into subjection, it is plain that he is uh, accepting who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, when the Son himself will be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So again, not just in Colossians, we see it all through the New Testament, this superiority of Christ, this preeminence of Jesus. And we see it in the, the fact that he is the beginning of his new life. That he is the head of the church and he is the beginning of new life, of this new creation. He is first in time and first in rank in the resurrection. Jesus is the beginning of God's creation in this new life. He is this picture of one who dies a real death on the cross as we celebrate each and every week. And by the power of the cross, as we'll see this morning, is resurrected to new life. Both in the physical and spiritual worlds. Revelation 3. Go to Revelation. We don't go to Revelation often. But in Revelation 3. Another little bonus thing for you this morning that I, that I found to be very interesting we don't use the word amen. Well, we use the word amen a whole lot, right? We say amen a lot in our prayers, more likely. Likely, every time you pray, you end it with amen. And sometimes we know what amen stands for. Sometimes we don't. And maybe you've had conversations about amen. But have you ever thought about Christ being the amen? Have you ever thought about Christ as a name, as a title for Jesus being amen? Well, look at this in Revelation 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Who is the beginning of God's creation? Physical creation, spiritual creation, all God's creation. It is Christ who is the beginning, the first, the foremost. It is Christ. Now go with me, and here's the special nugget for you. Go with me to 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 20, where we say amen, which means let it be. This is why we say this. 2 Corinthians 1, 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Again, we just see the power of Christ everywhere in every aspect of creation. It is Jesus. Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning of the physical creation. He's the beginning of spiritual creation. He's the beginning of all of life. And he's the beginning of spiritual, eternal life. He's the beginning of those who have gone from death to real life. It is Christ. And if you're here this morning, whether in person or online, if you've never experienced going from death to life, it is only through Christ that you experience that. Through Jesus. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the head. And thirdly, 
Jesus is the fullness. Jesus is the fullness. You look there in verse 19. For in Him, in Christ, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Paul's going to come back to this subject uh, in chapter 2 and towards the middle of it. So again, we're not going to get into all the, the beautiful details of what it means for the fullness of God to dwell in the person of Jesus. But we don't want to miss this point this morning that Paul is making. The fact is that the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus. Because to use the words of Scripture, Jesus is fully God and fully man. He is truly God and truly man. We walked through that last week. Walked through it again many times in Colossians. The fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus. It further points us to the deity of Jesus and to His preeminence, of His superiority. And this idea of the fullness of God dwelling, especially this word dwelling, that it dwells in Him. For in Him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This picture, especially to the original audience, to those reading this letter to the church of Colossae, they would have immediately connected this to the Old Testament and to how the the presence of God dwelled in the temple of God. So they would have connected to this idea of being, of being in the temple of God, the presence of God. But now there, there is no, that is not where the, the presence of God, it's not where He is pleased to dwell any longer. He is pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus. That is His representation. That is, that is Christ who is the image of the invisible God. Someone says it very well that I want to bring to you in a succinct fashion. He says this, in a typical New Testament emphasis, Christ replaces the temple as the place where God now dwells. There is now, this is now where all that can be known and experienced of God can be found. Let me say that last time one more time. This is now where all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found is in the person of Jesus. Because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Christ. And this is so important for us as believers as we seek to share the true gospel with our friends, family, and others. Are you prepared to share the gospel this is like gospel season. What do you mean by gospel? Every day is gospel season, right? Should be to a degree. But why is like why are we entering gospel season? Because who are you about to be surrounded with? Family, right? And not just like temporary. You're going to be stuck with them, right? Some of you more so than others. Some of them may come from out of town and camp at your house for a while. Or you may be traveling to them. Maybe folks you don't necessarily enjoy talking with a whole lot. Maybe folks you do love talking with a whole lot. Maybe some, maybe many of them, they do love the Lord and they trust the Lord and, and you can have great conversations about the Lord. But likely, you have family or close friends that you haven't seen in years that you have a chance to speak to about the gospel. So we'll call this gospel season. So prepare yourself to have these conversations about who Christ is. Because what better time than Christmas, right? It's a, it's a time to focus on Christ. Who is Christ? 
And so this idea of the, the fullness of God dwelling in the person of Jesus, this is the heart of the gospel, that God can be known. This is a conversation I've had a couple of times lately, one most recently, even last night, and talking to a, a friend and a business uh, acquaintance. We're talking about the Lord, and he was talking about the Lord differently than he had talked about a few years earlier. And I said, hey, you're talking about the Lord differently than you did a few years ago. He was kind of surprised that I, that I brought that up. And uh, long story short, he in essence said, uh, basically, you know, I believe God is everywhere. God's everywhere and everything, and, 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 God, and basically everyone's God is, is true God. So eh, let's, let's just back up and let's talk about that for a moment. There has to be truth. There, God has to be knowable. And how can we know who God is? We can know who God is because He was pleased for His fullness to dwell in the person of Christ because Christ is God. He makes Himself known through the person of Jesus. So we can ask. I can ask my friend. You can ask your friends. You can ask your family the same questions Jesus asked of Himself. One of the best questions Jesus asked, if you remember. He says, who do you say that I am. So if you want a good gospel presentation, if you're writing notes, write this down. If you want to write this on your hand, here you go. This is your whole question. You can throw this out at Thanksgiving dinner. If you don't want to talk about politics, we're all done with that, right? If you don't care about sports, if you don't care about anything else, here's what you throw out at the dinner table. Who do you say Jesus is? And that's what I asked my friend last night. I said, who do you say Jesus is? And he didn't have an answer. And so I said, hey, are you good with the next few weeks? Can we just sit and talk about who Jesus is? Absolutely. And that's where the conversation starts. Who is Jesus? The fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus, and we can know God by looking to Christ. Jesus is the fullness of God. Jesus is the beginning of life. Jesus is the head of the church. And finally, Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Redeemer. In verse 20, And through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And the idea of Christ reconciling His people continues into our text next week, so I'll, I'll save some of this, but not all of it. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. It became very clear to me this morning in our Bible study that no one remembers our time in Hebrews. Right, man? So Hebrews chapter 9 that we spent a good bit of time in a few years ago. Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11. So we think about Jesus being our Redeemer, the Reconciler. 9-11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and, and through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. And in case you're not tracking, so far Jesus is everything, right? Jesus has come as the high priest. Jesus is the tent. It's Jesus' blood. Once for all to the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption 
forth the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a, of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we see in a more detailed fashion, we see even all of these things that we're learning about Jesus in 15 through 20 here. We've seen all these things that, that, the, that the writer of Hebrews helps us to understand even in more detail. It is Christ that He has come to reconcile us, to redeem us by His blood. He brings all these elements that Paul brings in Colossians 1. He brings them together to shout of Christ redeeming, rescuing, reconciling work. Paul is reminding us that Jesus isn't reconciling just spiritual things, but all things. And we see this in the first couple of verses of this, of this text in 15, 16, and 17. He's even reconciling the, the heavens and the earth. As one author says it, says it very well, he says this, what is implied here in this text must be stated explicitly for us. So Paul's implying something here in Colossians 1 that needs to be stated explicitly for us. Reconciliation and the need for peace clearly mean that all of creation, whether things on earth or things in heaven, they have become estranged and brought into conflict with the Creator. So everything, not just spiritual reality, but all reality, physical, spiritual, everything, has become estranged and brought into conflict with God. And he continues, the universal reality of sin's devastating effects is described in parallel language with the comprehensive scope of Christ's work and creation. So everything's broken, but Christ has come to reconcile everything through His work. Just as all things were created through Him, all things must be reconciled through Him. Now let's finish our time with one more, with one more turn. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. That just really helps us to understand that the work of Jesus as He's reconciling all things in creation. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18. Romans eight eighteen. Paul says this. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
in not only the creation, but we ourselves. Paul said not just the physical creation is groaning because of the, the sinful effects of the fall, but us ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions, for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And it all points back to this majestic, preeminent, superior Christ who is above all. He is above all creation. He, all creation is subjected to Him. He is over all. All things have been created in Him, for Him, through Him, and for His people because He loves His people. He has given us life. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He has adopted us. He has done all of these things that we see in Colossians and Romans and Corinthians. Christ reconciles all things to Himself. He is the Redeemer. He is the fullness. He is the beginning. And He is the head. And we're going to see next week how the how He is continuing to reconcile us to Himself and what that looks like for us as believers. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for this morning. We thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy. We thank You for Your truth in Colossians 1. Thank You for Christ who is preeminent in all things. That He is the head of all creation, both physical and spiritual. That He is the head of creation and he is head of the church or there's one here who has never repented of their sins and turned to christ and trusted in him by your spirit this morning would you break them of their sin and cause them to look to you in repentance and faith or for the many of us in here who have may you remind us this morning of our great need of you and our great need of each other And may we look to you in continued faith and trust and hope this morning. As we sing this morning, as we come to your communion table, Lord, as we have a chance to give and as we leave this place, I pray that we do all of these things in faith and we do all these things for your great name. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.